You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 325 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, we are going to talk about a psychedelic we haven't talked about that much on the podcast, Salvia Divinorum. And uh, my guest is Patrick Krauss, uh, a producer who's just come out with a documentary on this substance. And uh, he's about to tell the story of how this documentary got made and a bit about the behind the scenes and also of course, about Salvia. The documentary is called Salvia Divinorum, A Western Approach. Just go to salviamovie.com and uh, you can also find it on Amazon. So thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you, Alex. Appreciate you having me. So can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are? Yes, so I'm Patrick Krauss and um, I uh, went out to Hollywood uh, in the late '90s, um, and uh, from you know Chicago, Illinois, uh, originally, and then uh, spent a few years in film school at University of Utah, then transferred to Cal State Northridge with film production, and then um, just uh, you know had a great time. And that was kind of the peak of cinema is the late nineties and early two thousands. You still had blockbuster, you know, Sundance film festival and the whole independent scene with Quentin Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez, and, um, um, the director of clerks, I'm forgetting his name at the moment. Uh, but it was just a, that was, you know, a real, you know, um, I'd say the high watermark of, of, uh, you know, your average of, of cinema and your average person, you know, you'd see at a grocery store, they would be talking about independent films and about what they saw at Blockbuster over the weekend. And, oh, yeah, this one, you know, got into Sundance. And we're talking just, you know, regular people like plumbers and carpenters or whatever. You know, there was a real appeal for um, independent cinema and, you know, kind of cutting edge artsy films. And um, so, you know, that was really kind of a special time to be a young person at the time doing that stuff. And, um, as, as social media and then R rated television and a few other dynamics over, you know, the years and then blockbuster kind of going away. Um, and then the price of, of movie tickets and, and, um, all of these kinds of competing factors did really seem to, uh, make changes with the, uh, your general audience. And so, um, and so I, I was, you know, primarily focused on, uh, independent producing and, uh, writing screenplays and had a variety of different jobs in Hollywood. Um, you know, grip PA, all those kinds of entry level jobs. And then in the, in the late two thousands, I was able to, uh, start getting some better credits. I got a co-writing credit on, a, a film that was, I don't know the exact budget. It was maybe a million to 3 million, but that was, that came out in 2008. That's called David and Fatima. And that was um, like Romeo and Juliet in the Middle East uh, between a, a young uh, Muslim uh, girl and a, a Jewish Israeli boy in, in Israel. And ours was, uh, there was a couple other films 
that had similar themes, but ours was kind of the hard R-rated film, which was great. We had uh, Martin Landau was in it. He's an Oscar winner. We had, uh, it was the last film that Tony Curtis was in, uh, as far as I know. Um, and he was an Oscar nominated uh, actor, very famous in his day. Um, and then I was also a, an associate producer on a horror movie, which is probably the first ever um, Amish horror movie that came out in 2008. That's called The Season. And uh, my good friend was uh, the director of that. That was a great experience. And so, and right around that time, around 2007, 2008, um, I met uh, the director, Aaron Weich, of, of our film, the Salvia Divinorum uh, documentary. And um, we, you know, had similar interests. She was just finishing up film school at uh, Pepperdine University in uh, in Malibu. And um, and we met on a production set and then we, uh, you know, really fell in love in 2007 and then had a great relationship for six and a half years. And she wanted to direct documentaries. And I said, oh, great. You know, um, I, you know, that like all you really need for those is a camera and some contracts. And my joke was, oh, we don't have to deal with the drama of actors and stuff like that. But what I found out was, is that there's still quite a lot of um, and I don't want to say anything negative, but it, it, it is interesting to different worlds of expertise. There is a lot of competitiveness among the different experts in that world, not all the time, but sometimes. And so I, I did notice that a little bit in the doctors and science world. Um, I'd say, you know, 90% of them were, were, were just wonderful, but then you would bump into people who, of course, they knew quite a lot about salvia, but since it wasn't exactly their expertise, they didn't feel like they were the authority to speak on that. Or then there were some, some scientists who, um, you know, I guess were a little bit more standoffish and we couldn't get an interview and they were a little bit more critical. And so I was a little bit surprised about that. The other thing that was surprising about doing a documentary was um, it's, it can take you to get one of these kinds of big names in even in, even in the science world or or, or what have you, um, it couldn't take a long time. Or a politician, say there's a key politician, that might, like one experience we had is the first politician to start writing laws about salvia was uh, um, Representative Joe Baca out of San Bernardino, California, and he he proposed uh, making it um, a a Schedule One felony drug in 2002. And um, some scientists were able to actually um, jump on that before that was kind of going to, you know, uh, the Congress and, and do conduct a, a study right away um, because if there's no, you know, medicinal value or, or you know, potential, you know, beneficial use of, of one of these, you know, of a substance... Um, then it's it's on, kind of on the fast track to becoming a Schedule One substance, but so these scientists uh, were able to conduct some studies right away um, and submit that, and then kind of uh, kind of was able to block the law because they were able to get dis discovered that it had some potential for medicinal use, and so that did kind of um, take the wind out of the sails of Joe Baca's bill. And I was back to like trying to get his interview. Um, it took me like nine months 
of calling his office, going back and forth with, um, you know, his represent his, his kind of, you know, handlers or his, his, uh, you know, PR staff. And they just kept kind of, you know, saying, Oh, we can't, you know, kind of, you know, blowing me off or putting it off and saying, call back maybe in a couple of weeks, or he's, you know, he's really busy. And so after nine months, I was like, okay, well, just, just say no, if you don't, if you don't want to give the interview, <laughs> you know, and the guy said, okay, yeah, no, we're not going to give you interview Cause I, it, I know it was, it, you know, he didn't want to highlight himself kind of having a defeat wouldn't necessarily make him look good, but I, I was trying, you know, our hardest to get, you know, his perspective on it and where that came up from. Um, and so that's what we noticed was pretty interesting about, uh, how long it can take to try to, if you're, if you have kind of a real specific list of, of the, you know, of people that you need for your film, um, whereas, um, a, a documentary filmmaker friend of mine, um, he told me that he got Noam Chomsky in his film and I'm like, you're kidding. Like, how'd you get Noam Chomsky? And this was, this was back in 2009 and, um, He's like, oh, just just call his office. I'm like, really? So I I was able to get Noam Chomsky's interview, and that was actually relatively quick. And that turnaround time was about four months. And so that should give you a perspective of how long it can take to kind of land these big interviews, um, and uh, and some other dynamics of doing documentary filmmaking, which is um, we did kind of luck out in early on. Whereas, uh, you know, one of the, the top pioneers of, if not the top pioneer of Salvia is uh, Daniel Siebert. And he's an he's a independent researcher who in, I believe it was 94, he was able to um, isolate the crystals uh, doing different extraction methods um, in his lab. And the crystals... Uh, turned out to be, you know, pure salvinorin A. He named it salvinorin A, and he was able to pull these crystals out of the salvia leaves with these extractions. And then he did uh, try it and experimented with it himself, and it was, boom, like the most powerful psychedelic experience um, he's ever had. And arguably, salvia divinorum is, by most accounts, the most powerful naturally occurring psychedelic. Um, and so, he published um, his studies and then that started to open up the doors with Salvia in 94. And so for us to get his interview, like right, you know, kind of out of the gate, because luckily at the time he was in Malibu, we were, uh, you know, living in LA and, you know, Malibu is just a suburb of LA. And, um, and he was generous enough to give us a good like hour and a half interview. We, we shot that in the uh, Santa Monica mountains. I believe that was in 2008. We started shooting in 2008. Uh, in in March, she uh, the director initially had the concept in 2007, um, and then once she kind of you know uh, graduated and then got uh, a regular job in in uh, Hollywood and some and got situated, then we started production. But um, the number one question we always had was, did we get Daniel Siebert's interview right? Because the psychedelic world is a pretty small place, and and then the Salvia Divinorum world is extremely small. And they all kind of know each other, read each other's studies and everything. And we were right off the bat, we were able to be like, yes, we got Daniel Siebert's interview. And then it was the doors started to open. And then they said, oh, OK, you're, you're legit. Because um, at the time, Salvia was a really hot topic. It was um, I'd say the peak of interest was 
in the mainstream media and everything was about 2007 to 2011. It was um, in in the media and in in the, in on lawmakers' radars quite a bit, and it was you know sold in head shops kind of you know anywhere it was legal, which was you know at the time most of the country, and so um, and people and then YouTube was really starting to take off, so. So people would see these these videos that looked quite alarming of people having these you know extreme experiences um, and on on salvia and recording them and putting them on YouTube, and so the press was just really you know having a field day with it, um, and so um, and so most of the scientists and people we were we were contacting they were you know a little bit on edge about just giving an interview uh, because the, the media was really making. Um, a lot of different news stories about it. It was very controversial at the time. And, and also at the time, there, people were a little bit less um, open with uh, the whole sci- psychedelic science aspect. Whereas, you know, here it's been like, you know, 14 years later, and now psychedelic science is starting to become more of a mainstream thing. So that's, you know, a, a positive effect. Um, and so... Um, and so, yeah, what, so what happened was um, it was quite a long uh, journey to get all of these really big interviews. And we were in production for, gosh, about four and a half years. And uh, we were still working our regular jobs. And um, for some reason, Erin uh, Weich, the director, she just really wanted to go big. And she we did a ton of different studies on breaking down some of the top documentaries of the time, um, and how many interviews they got, um, you know, kind of their methods and how much B-roll they got. We did, we, we watched, uh, Super Size Me, that, uh, 2004, uh, big hit by, uh, Morgan Spurlock, which was about the McDonald's food, uh, you know, and, and, and the unhealthiness of the food. And we broke down like how many top interviews he got, how much B-roll he got, how many bits of animation he got. And so we did a tally watching that whole film, and that gave us a really good kind of structure on how to, you know, what we're going to really need. And we're, you know, it came down to something like 35 top interviews, 50, you know, six, you know, different, you know, shots of B-roll with animation. And then we quickly learned that like if our style of filmmaking was more of talking heads and that's, that is a challenging style. You know, we, we studied, this was, this was uh, the director's debut film. This was my first time producing a documentary. I mostly, you know, narrative um, and go off screenplays and storyboards and all of that stuff for our indie films that I produce. Um, and so uh, there's really just kind of a handful of formats that you can do. And we chose the talking heads format, which is actually a challenging format uh, because, you know, you, you, you're kind of stuck with that, that one interview and then you, you you have to you know, go with B-roll and go with, you know, kind of cutaway shots and try to tell your story that way. There's a whole, you know, handful of different, you know, tactics for B-roll and styles for B-roll, but you're, you're fairly limited to that. Um, whereas, and, and, and it's, so it's, it's much more challenging to do films that way, in my opinion, and documentaries, like I was saying earlier, you know, can take you, you know, years and years and took, can take you, you know, uh, nine months just to get a no from a congressman, which happened to us. So, um, the, the easy format, in my opinion, is, of course, it's very challenging as well to be, you know, kind of, you almost have to be a comedian with, with your entertainment value and your timing. Um, 
but like the Michael Moores and the Morgan Spurlocks out there where they're on, the director is on camera and they're leading you through that journey because that, that gives so much more opportunity for, you know, B-roll, like, because we, we can't really tell the whole story of us trying to get a hold of Congressman Joe Baca in the film that just kind of went to the editing room floor because we can't really, maybe we could add like a little bit of text or a little bit of narration to it. But in Morgan Spurlock's uh, Super Size Me, he was, um, he would, you know, show videos of himself getting all of these kinds of rejection phone calls that he was trying to reach some CEO or something. And it was just kind of a dead end, but he could play those. He can, he can, he can put all of those kinds of failed attempts into it as a small segment. So um, we, we kind of learned that, you know, um, what we're going up against is a bit of a challenge in style and format. And then the director just, she just really, after breaking down all these big films and seeing how many interviews that they had uh, and, and how much B-roll they had and, and how to really, you know, what we were looking at, we realized that we were going to have to try to do it, you know, about four top interviews per subject. And she broke down all the different subjects. She wanted to have the most like complete film on the subject and just really dominate the subgenre. Um, and we were competing against other films at the time, which was, uh, they all kind of, fell off and they stopped there was this film called inside salvia these filmmakers did go and interview daniel siebert the same year we did in 2008 and they just i think they just kind of gave up um and then we other people that we were kind of on you know calling for interviews they they said oh we got you know we got calls from different people that wanted to do interviews and they were doing documentaries on salvia so we heard of about roughly five other documentaries that were going to be coming out were in production at the time, but none of those got, got completed. So we were kind of the last one standing, even though it took us forever to complete it. Um, and so there was, you know, an interesting, you know, kind of sense of competition and trying to be the best. And I think that also motivated the director to try to go really heavy on um, providing as much content as possible for each segment. And so, um, so that's, that's why we wound up, um, in production for about, I, I'd say I was really heavy into it for about two years. And then, and then, uh, the director was still, you know, wrapping things up for a total of, of about, you know, th I'd say three and a half to four years. And we were, we were working regular jobs at the time. And then we would, um, if there was a big convention or something that we, you know, wanted to go and, and shoot like a big psychedelic convention or a head shop convention that was, you know, close enough for us to leave LA and go to Vegas for the head shop convention for all the smoke shops that that one's called champs. We drove out there. We, those are our, our kind of uh, vacation times as we would, we would go and shoot something. Uh, we went up to San Francisco and in 2010, we got a whole bunch of amazing interviews at uh, the maps convention which MAPS is, is one of the largest, uh, if, if the largest in America, no doubt, um, possibly the world of uh, psychedelic science and uh, researchers kind of all coming together under this nonprofit umbrella to spread awareness and to, and to you know, help move the ball forward on uh, passing laws to get psychedelic science uh, to be taken seriously by the federal government and to, uh, to, to kind of open up some of the roadblocks which um, were, in my opinion, some of the main uh, uh, roadblocks for Salvia were unintended by Congress. And I think Congress and the lawmakers, 
you know, it just seems like, well, we have to, if it's a, if it's a drug, we got, we should just make it illegal and be done with it. Um, which yes, to a degree, if it's a, if it's a harmful drug, I, you know, I mean, I can understand they're, they're thinking about that, uh, in that way, but they, uh, when they created the schedule, uh, drug laws in, I believe it was 1970 under Nixon, they did the schedule one system, the schedule system, right? And so schedule one was the belief that it had no medicinal value and, uh, was just a menace to society basically. And so, with that kind of declaration and they, they wound up putting all of the psychedelic drugs in that, almost all of them in that category. And so that, um, that made it extremely difficult because this was the the most restrictive of all the categories. And so just to even get a scientist, uh, to have approval to, to look at LSD or look at, you know, um, magic mushrooms or things like that, it was, it was quite a lot of hurdles. And then the other hurdle that, that they had in there was great. Well, if you can, you know, make a medicine out of, uh, magic mushrooms or some kind of a therapy, it's even, even if you get scientific research approval, you can't ever really bring those drugs to the market because of the schedule one status. And so it just, it really limited things. Um, and as far as like, you know, schedule two, like, uh, you know, has some, uh, you know, harmful, substances in there like like uh cocaine and like um um i believe heroin because it's a opiate uh, derivative is is a schedule two right for opium and uh so those were allowed um to have medical use so right you you may be familiar that uh cocaine um is is sometimes a medicine for eye doctors because it it uh, when they're doing eye surgery they have eye droppers that have cocaine in it which will uh, numb the eye so that they can uh, do some, you know, uh, surgical procedures. And so, you know, there are these benefits with uh, that that are probably in all of the Schedule Ones. And the silliest of all was, of course, the marijuana law, uh, because there's there's no doubt uh, lots of uh, medicinal benefits, and the 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 harm from it is relatively low. Um, if you know that's that's debatable if it, if there is much harm at all, but. Um, and so that really has kind of been where where maps and other uh, you know uh, medical freedom fighters have, for, for, particularly for psychedelics and and substances that were thrown into the Schedule One system and and kind of law category. Um, it's it's just been a huge uphill battle since then because uh, sadly you know the these. There, there are definitely some medical benefits for some of some of these, particularly with with uh, medic, you know, um, mental health and uh, mental therapy for people that have had, you know, uh, PTSD and severe trauma. Um, they have uh, had some miracle breakthroughs of uh, of healing with with uh, with, you know, magic mushrooms and MDMA ecstasy. And so uh, that that's kind of been on the forefront of of. Uh, where maps and other organizations are trying to, uh, you know, get the benefits to the, to the people suffering. And so there, you know, it was, it was amazing to go to the maps convention and, and see in, uh, all of these, um, all of these real, you know, people trying to make the world a better place because, uh, and, and to understand, you know, the depths of, of the suffering that some people have that no other medicine can really, 
you know, even scratch the surface of, of doing anything uh, beneficial. It, it was just shocking. Um, and just to, to see some of the different presentations at the MAPS conference in 2010 was absolutely, you know, eye-opening. And it, it really did cause a lot of concern that like, you know, lawmakers, they just, they don't really understand that, you know, in some cases, these are the only uh, substances that have had any kind of, uh, even, even, you know, halfway or slight benefit to some of these people that have, you know, severe trauma. Um, one of the most, uh, fascinating of the psychedelic research stories that we saw, uh, at the MAPS conference, and that was up in San Jose in 2010 was, um, this group called cluster busters. I think this might be something that you might want to consider looking into if you haven't. What, what happened when we were at the, at the maps convention is, uh, we didn't have money for tickets. They were actually a little expensive and the, um, and you know, we were, we were pretty much, you know, just kind of, you know, paycheck to paycheck in LA, you know, and, uh, didn't have a whole lot to even go out to San Francisco, let alone pay for the tickets which, you know, were, you know, maybe $250 a day or, or $700 for like the, the, uh, the four day pass or something like that, plus hotels and all their stuff. So, um, what was so wonderful was, uh, maps, uh, they needed a video crew and they, and I, and I said, Oh, is there any way we could just like, you know, come in and get interviews? You know, we don't really, we don't really have enough for a, a lot of the tickets, but maybe we could do one for one day. Um, and they said, hey, we'll give you a, a, a hotel room. And um, if you crew for us, you know, during during the, the normal sessions, because we need a big video crew because we've got all these presentations going on. We do these uh, we make a big video series of the, of the whole conference. And we said, sure, no, that'd be terrific. We'd be happy to do, you know, audio video crew. And they gave us a hotel um, like right at the, uh, at the resort that we were, that the whole convention was at. So it was, it was pretty awesome. Um, that maps was just absolutely wonderful. And we were, you know, always, you know, extremely thankful for their generosity. And so we, so I was, um, I was part of the video crew of this one we were cluster busters and cluster headaches is basically what their, uh, their whole thing is about. And I was never, I didn't even know what cluster headaches were. And it's, it's kind of like a migraine times a thousand. Um, they're extremely painful. And to see, to watch video footage of people suffering from cluster headaches was, was just absolutely heartbreaking. It almost brings a tear to your eye because there's, there's, um, they've tried all these different kinds of medicines, but nothing seems to, to work that they'll give people oxygen to breathe with oxygen tanks that might reduce it slightly, but it doesn't really work. They were even, um, you know, uh, looking into doing, uh, gosh, they think they did try try to do shock therapy that didn't work, but they, there was a tiny bit of benefit off of an invasive surgical procedure where they actually, you know, cut up parts of the brain through the nasal cavity and do a surgical incision that way. Um, and, and it's almost like, I would say, I'm not an expert on this stuff at all, but it's almost kind of like a little bit of a, like a, a, a minor lobotomy or something like that. And that didn't, wasn't even a guarantee. And that was just, but that was probably the best that, that, that they had at the time. And so, uh, some, some, uh, people suffering from this terrible illness, um, 
discovered that there was some online chatter about magic mushrooms having some medicinal benefits. And, um, and so cluster busters was, is an organization where, um, they were trying to help people and, and show them what they needed to do to, to get their hands on psilocybin mushrooms. And even just a tiny bit, like almost like a micro dose would, would provide relief for people that had these cluster headaches. So that's just, that's probably the most extreme example of uh, psychedelic medicine and, and why it is so important. Um, and so, and so in our research, um, we discovered something pretty fascinating about salvia divinorum with uh, the different scientists and doctors that we're interviewing is that um, it's, of course, you know, it's, it's the most powerful naturally occurring substance, but it, uh, it doesn't re release serotonin. So you don't really get that happy buzz. You just get the psychedelic dysphoria without the happy buzz. And so that's probably why when we talk to head shop smoke, head shop, uh, you know, smoke shop owners, uh, establishment owners, they were saying that um, maybe 30% of their customers, you know, thought it was a pleasant experience on Salvia. Um, and it was more of kind of just like a really wild ride and a kind of a novelty. And if people don't really know what Salvia is like, it's the, the experiences are, can be quite different, but, um, most of the time people would, would have what would be considered like an out of body experience where you, you're not really, you, you're physically, you're, you're not mobile. You can't really kind of, you know, partake in salvia and then, you know, run around in a, in a field of flowers or go to a big concert or kind of hang out with people. It's, it's a short lived trip and it's, you know, maybe 10 minutes of a very high you know, intense feeling and you're usually sitting on, in, you know, in a couch or a chair and then your body uh, kind of goes into this out of body experience. It, most of the time, if it's a very strong, you know, um, dose that that, you, that the, the participant would, would take. And during this out of body experience, uh, they would, you know, have different things where they feel like they're floating above the room. Uh, they, they might be, you know, in a different world, the whole, the whole room changes to some completely different, you know, atmosphere or different, you know, uh, different dimension or different world. Um, and that's pretty common. Um, I had, I, I had a little bit of experience with, uh, psychedelics in, in high school and college of just mushrooms and LSD. And, uh, you know, I, you know, did, you know, uh, do some salvia once I started producing the film, just cause I figured I'd have to kind of know what this is about. And, um, and I've had some pretty, pretty serious, you know, ex experiences with salvia. Um, one was like, like I, it was like the whole room I was sitting in, um, like, instead of like melting or whatever, it just, it was like hyperspace and it was just, I just started flying and it would just kind of like, you know, like it just boom, you know, it was kind of like in the movie star Wars where they go into hyperspace and all the stars just go and they just start flying, you know, um, at whatever, you know, speed that is. And so, um, and so what's interesting is, um, and then it was only about 10 minutes and then, uh, so I'm flying through hyperspace and it's actually kind of terrifying. 
And then I had this like telepath, like telepathically, there was this being behind me that had a, a jester outfit and kind of a gargoyle face or like, a, like a gargoyle skeleton face in like a jester outfit with the jester hat. And I could, I, I knew he was behind me and I could kind of see him behind me, but even though I was still looking forward, going through hyperspace and uh, telepathically, this being told me that, Oh, don't worry about it. You're okay. And I'm like, okay, okay. And I kind of came out of it. And then you have an afterglow, which might be about another 20 minutes. Um, and then that's kind of it. It's, uh, but without the serotonin for most people, it's extremely, it's extremely intense and scary. Uh, most of the, a lot of the time, some people they'll stand up and they'll stumble and fall because you can't really have good motor uh, functions. A lot of people will hurt themselves. They'll fall and, and hit their head on the coffee table or stumble around and break something. Um, there, there have been some instances where people had that had a terrifying feeling and jumped out of windows. We do have that in the film. There is two people that jumped out of windows. Um, there have been two incidents where, uh, people went into a, like a full-blown psychosis. Um, there was one in San Bernardino. We didn't, that didn't, that interview didn't make the film. Um, uh, but then there was one in Germany. We did get an interview of a doctor who commented on that story. He wasn't there, but, uh, he, he breaks down the whole story of that. And then, um, so there, there are, you know, potential harms, but it's, it's, uh, the drugs non-toxic. And people seem to come back back from it without any kind of brain damage or anything like that. Um, but it's be, because of the dysphoria and because of the people can actually accidentally do harm to themselves if they're not careful of, of you know, uh, like jumping out of windows or or uh, falling or, or things like that. Um, so it's 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 quite a fascinating a substance I never heard of it at the time in 2007, and I was shocked that there was a psychedelic that I'd ever heard of because I thought that you know I kind of knew it, knew it all. And so um, we looked it up at the time, and then the director uh, she was going to pick between that and another subject, but it seemed like you know that one there was uh, you, there was no other films at the time on the subject, and it seemed like this would be something that we could pull off, and we were a little bit naive on on documentary films as they are pretty hard to do. I'd say that's one of the hardest genres to ever do. So, um, so yeah, so then, um, we were making quite a lot of progress. Uh, I'd say we were, we had most of the film in the can by the end of, of, by the middle of 2012. And then it was just kind of this giant process of editing, which wound up being, um, about a five hour edit at first. And then we just kind of whittled away from there. And then it was close, but it still wasn't, it's, it, it, we still had, we, we were trying to pull another editors to get different ideas because we were, we were so immersed in the subject matter for so many years that it was kind of hard for us to see where, you know, the, uh, um, you know, what's, what's exciting to your, your person who's, who's not familiar with this subject, because to us, all of it was exciting. Um, and so, and then, um, in 2013, uh, the, the director, uh, we had an an unexpected pregnancy. Of course, the director was my, um, 
the director is my was my longtime girlfriend. And so uh, in 2013, we discovered the unexpected pregnancy around March. And uh, we said, oh, well, we're t- we've been together for so long. We should just, you know, we should, we should just get married and, and, and uh, have a family and, and go for it. And um, we were concerned about her health, of course, because she, uh, she had lupus flare up and discovered she had lupus in 2011. That was a pretty bad flare up. And so um, it was a big decision, you know, um, to, but it's didn't, we didn't get any, any, uh, any concerns from the doctors necessarily. And even the director's parents were doctors too. So it, uh, it seemed like, you know, if, if worst case scenario is that Aaron, you know, would have an, another lupus flare up, but since we, she had, she, we knew that she had lupus, it seemed like the doctors would be able to, to, you know, take care of it from there with the different treatments that they have. So lupus is an autoimmune disease and it's, it's uh, where the body gets tricked into attacking itself. So the, the T cells that attack, you know, um, viruses and, and, and bacteria and stuff in the body, they uh, kind of go a little crazy and they start attacking the body itself and, and you go into a big fever and then like all the organs in your body start getting attacked by itself. And then to, to get out of that, uh, they shoot you up with a bunch of steroids like prednisone and then a couple other medications and then the body kind of goes back to normal, but there can, there can, it could happen where you have a flare up again, where your body just kind of goes haywire and starts attacking itself. So sadly, Aaron was 26 when she had this happen. It was right after, uh, her, her grandfather, who was a, a big mentor to her because he was, um, a police lieutenant. I believe this is correct. He was a police lieutenant in, uh, in Philadelphia. And, um, he was, he was quite a community leader. There's even pictures of him, even pictures of her father with, uh, Martin Luther King. Um, and so when he died, uh, that, that was in the, in the, the early, uh, 2011, she had, she went out to the funeral and this was right before she went to the funeral. We got one of our top interviews with, uh, the celebrity musician, Andrew WK, who um, was the first celebrity to talk about experience of, of doing salvia. And Andrew WK uh, was on a, a radio podcast in 2007 talking about his salvia experience. And we were excited that he granted us an interview. And like she got that interview right before she jumped on the airplane to go to the funeral. Uh, funeral was extremely devastating for her. She comes back and she has a fever and then the fever lasted like two months until they figured out what was really going on. And she had lupus and then she was on treatment for like a year. Her body was really in bad shape. So by the time, um, she was pregnant in 2013, she, she was still fairly beat up from her lupus experience and the drugs, but she, you know, by all accounts of the different doctors and everything, it, it seemed like she was going to be okay to, uh, to, to follow through with the pregnancy. And we were together for so long, we were excited to, you know, get married and and start a family. And so the errands, uh, and and my daughter was born in, uh, October, 
of 2013 and everything seemed great. Uh, the, 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 the baby came a little bit early, but only, only like, you know, a month early. So the baby was healthy. Aaron was healthy. We were really excited. It seems like we, you know, um, we're, we're on, on like, you know, got lucky with, without any kind of a lupus flare up. And then six weeks later, uh, she, cause most women, when they have, when they give birth, they have a, uh, a, a, what's it called? Uh, their blood platelets go down a little bit after birth and, you know, they might kind of, uh, then they typically would bounce back. You know, I don't know the time frame of that, but that, so it didn't, so her blood platelets were low. That was normal. And they were supposed to be coming back to normal, but they never did. And they actually just kept going down to the point where she had almost no blood platelets. And this was just, you know, so she had internal bleeding all of a sudden she was really sick. Uh, I, she calls me, I come home from work, I take her to the hospital right away. And, um, and then next thing I know she's on a life support and the doctors are talking to me like it's, it's looking really bad, like she's going to die. And I was still kind of like, oh no, we've been through this before. We'll be okay. Um, and then sure enough, we discover later with different, more testing that she's, um, her blood plates, platelets are not coming back. They tried everything for that. And then, uh, she was considered, um, brain dead, which they have never had any recovery from people once they have the brain dead diagnosis. And so her dad flew out and, uh, she has a, a wonderful aunt in Los Angeles who came and we were there. Um, and it was one of those awful things where you, we, it was a pull the plug, uh, situation. And we, we, we were all there saying prayers for her and, and uh, watched her pass away at 28 years old. So it was just awful. Totally awful. Um, and then uh, this was kind of her one and only film. And it's um, it took a long time for, for me to get, get it com- completed. You know, obviously I was a single dad. I, I had to really take a break from all my kind of Hollywood stuff and just kind of uh, knuckle down, raise my daughter, kind of revamp my career. Um, and then finally, you know, got some money from friends with a, a, a GoFundMe campaign. Uh, got an editor to help push push it a lot further. We were super close, but then there's lots of these little fine tuned things. And, and unfortunately, I don't edit. This is an old editing program that we're on. It was very difficult to find an editor that knew, knows this program. It was Final Cut Seven, and so many years went by that like it was almost nobody knew Final Cut Seven. But luckily, I, I and then. Paying for editing, if anybody knows how expensive that is, it's extremely expensive. And so, uh, finally, started making better money, and I was able to get it get it done. And we just released it this year. Um, and so it was just, you know, a lot of it, you know, had to sit on the shelf for years as I raised my daughter and just try to navigate the single parent life, which is, you know, just being a parent in general is very difficult, as I'm sure you know, Alex. <laughs> um, so luckily all of that came together and then, um, and so, and so, yeah, so, um, and as, as anybody who watches the film, they'll see that it's, it's, uh, we've overloaded it with interviews and put so much time and care into it. Um, and it's, it's really, you, people really are going to get their money's worth. And, and we're hoping that this was going to be the number one film on the subject. I believe we are at the moment. There's only other only two other feature films that were specifically geared towards Salvia. And they're more of like a, well, one's not exactly a film. It's sort of a film. So we have, I, 
There's one that was in Spanish that was in shot in Mexico with, uh, you know, the, in the, the famous town for Salvia divinorum is, uh, Walta de Jimenez in, in Oaxaca, Mexico. It's an isolated mountain town. And, um, and the, uh, the story about how Salvia kind of survived the Spanish. Uh, well, let me just finish up with the two other films and we can talk about Walta. But so that film, um, it was just kind of released on, on, I forget the name of it. I want to, it's, it's, uh, anyway, it, it just, it, it's all in Spanish and it, it just kind of is a light documentary going around talking to some of the people in, in Walta. And it's just kind of like a jungle mountain town that's totally remote. And the Mazatec people there are the, are the, they've kind of survived the Spanish um, conquest because of course they, they were able to hide their, their uh, psychedelic sacraments, which was magic, primarily magic mushrooms. And then on the off season of mushrooms, they, salvia grew there wild and they discovered salvia over the centuries. And so they would, they would give a uh, Christian spirit, you know, like holy names to, to mushrooms and to salvia. And they would do their ceremonies kind of in secret from the Spanish. So, so over the centuries, it, they they were and they were so isolated. The Spanish didn't really bother with them for you know hundreds and hundreds of years, more or less, and they were able to keep it a secret. Um, so that's how some of those traditions are still around today with the Mazatec people. And so that one documentary came out. I gosh, I want to say twenty fourteen, and then um, a psychedelic uh, guru. Um, uh, filmmaker uh, Hamilton Morris, who had that amazing show on Vice, and now he's he's got um, a, a podcast, and he still does uh, you know kind of psychedelic research. Uh, he did the Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia on Vice TV in like I gosh I don't know when that came out. I want to say 2010, maybe 2008, which was kind of a high point of psychedelics in in media and in and in. Uh, in, in cinema, there's a bunch of documentaries on, on DMT and ayahuasca that were kind of emerging at the time, a lot of popularity with uh, that subject matter. And so um, Hamilton, uh, he did a, like, a, I guess, one small show on Salvia with Vice, and then he did like a one hour special, which came out, I want to say 2015 around there. And he did get Daniel Siebert, which was great. And then he he actually did go to Mexico and do a uh, a full on ceremony. Now we got in our film, I don't think he got uh, Fingorio if I'm pronouncing his name right, but we did get Maria Sabina's grandson talking about the tradition that Maria Sabina gave uh, taught him and gave like um, you know for for healing and stuff. And Maria Sabina is the Mazatec uh, curandera. And a curandera is like a shamaness and a medicine healer. So she was taught the traditional practices from the Mazatec, you know, the from the ancient traditions of, of the spiritual uh, significance and healing and ceremonies. And mostly salvia was used to cure ailments, um, particularly this thing that, that would be like a swollen belly or sheep's belly is what it would be called for like a... a a gastrointestinal um, ailments. And so that it was used for that for medicine, but then it was also used in, you know, for kind of spiritual healing and ceremonial uses too. So Hamilton was able to participate in that. I didn't see the whole movie. Maybe it is uh, somebody who knew Maria Sabina, but uh, we were really excited to, we, we were, it took me seven months 
but I was able to find a camera guy down in Wawalta and uh, send him some money and kind of a list of people to interview. And so we got some local interviews there. He got lots of B-roll of Wawalta for us. He got Maria Sabina's grave. And uh, there's this um, American anthropologist named Ben Feinberg. Um, he wrote some books. He was a big researcher on, on Walta, and I was able to find Ben Feinberg and he was the one who introduced me to our camera guy down there, whose name is Hobe and Hobe did a wonderful job. Um, got us some great interviews, got us like a really key interview with, uh, uh, Maria Sabina's grandson, Fingorio. And, and he breaks down the whole ceremony and what they, what they used it for and everything there. So, um, so I think that's it for Salvia documentaries is there's just those two and otherwise it's mentioned a little bit here and there in other films, but it's, but there's never been anything that's, um, that's been, you know, the main topic of the film. And so our film and, and, uh, we tried to cover every single aspect of it. The lawmaking, uh, uh, we, we got several interviews from lawmakers. We've got Kathleen Harrison. She was probably the biggest American lawmaker, out of, she's out of Delaware and she, she wrote, um, not the first legislation making salvia schedule one, uh, felony substance in the state of Delaware, but she, uh, she got contacted from this tragic story of this young man named, uh, Brett Chittister, who is, uh, you know, valedictorian type, you know, uh, all-star, uh, uh, you know, you really loved kid in the community, um, in the, in the suburbs of Wilmington, Delaware. And, uh, he took salvia and then it changed his perspective on life quite a bit. And he wound up committing suicide and, and the parents, uh, were extremely concerned. They didn't want this to happen to any, anybody else. It was just an awful tragedy. So I, I, I can completely understand their concern, about this legal substance at the time and, and that their son, it, ch- it just changed his point of view on everything. And then he committed suicide. So, I mean, it, Salvia was an indirect, you know, cause of his death in this case. Um, I always find it a bit, bit funny though, because uh, I think the statistics is something like 80, 80% of all violent crime and, and rape and murder, alcohol is involved, but nobody ever tries to, to ban that, you know. Oh, yeah, exactly. That's a good point. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it's, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it. This was a strange one, but I mean, I, I think that the parents just had, they had good intentions, right? And so, and um, they, they just didn't want to, to, to have people. So, and it was kind of a mystery, you know, thing at the time. You know, I mean, I guess they did wind up getting uh, a lot of. Uh, negativity from the psychedelic from you know i guess trolls in the psychedelic world or whatever well i i understand the parents how why what why they think that but uh i mean the the lawmakers should be more uh, have a bigger picture you know uh, they should uh, you know what i mean i i think they should have been more studies on it or they should have tried to figure out um yeah i think it's uh, they're they're really just quick to pass laws on things. And then I did notice something. It didn't make it into our film. But what was really fascinating about some of these salvia laws is um, that was just kind of the headliner of the law. And then if you read the whole bill, 
they're actually making a whole bunch of other drugs illegal too, which I thought was strange. And so I started looking up some of these different drugs that were kind of slid into the salvia bill. Um, and I, I, I know definitely for the Illinois case, I was looking into that one, but I, I, I didn't, I, so, so I'm speaking about the Illinois case on particularly here. And I guess these were just recommendations from different pharmaceutical companies. Nothing that I saw that was that, that interesting about why these, uh, these other, uh, drugs were kind of put into the salvia bill and kind of piggybacked into it. And, um, I couldn't get a good, a good answer from our camera guy that did, uh, the, the Illinois interview with, uh, he was a, a state representative named, uh, Dennis Rebelletti, who was gracious enough to give us an interview. Um, but, um, I, our camera guy didn't, didn't properly ask the question the right way on, on how that all works. And then when I, when I was looking up the different drugs that were kind of slid into the salvia bill, none of them seemed to make any kind of concern. They just seemed to be like medical drugs that had pretty bad side effects. So it was just kind of an interesting, so I, I, it's an interesting dynamic of how lawmaking goes down like that. Um, but it didn't seem to pull up any kind of nefarious intent or anything, anything suspect. Um, but, it, but it's interesting to somebody to one of these days to kind of figure out how all that works when they, they headline it as a salvia bill that's kind of political. So then all, you know, it, it would, you know, you're not going to have much pushback in, in, in the state legislatures on, on something like that. But, um, but then there's a bunch of, you know, other drugs in it. So that was, that was kind of an interesting one, but so anyhow, uh, back to Delaware, Kathleen Chittister or Kathleen, uh, Kathleen Harrison gave us a, an interview, but her, that was really nice of her. And she, she, um, her bill kind of became a template. And this story of this poor kid, uh, Brett Chittister, who committed suicide and, and the parents that were just absolutely devastated. I can't imagine, you know, what that would be like. I feel so bad for them. Uh, we did get some interviews of, uh, the parents wouldn't give us an interview, but we did get some interviews of Brett Chittister's girlfriend and, um, and one of his high school buddies. And then we did, uh, we got Kathleen's interview. She talks about Brett and the impact that Brett kind of had on, on uh, Salvia legally. And then, and then we did get the California assemblyman who tried, who passed the California bill. Um, and that's uh, assemblyman Anthony Adams and Anthony, um, he did have a little bit of pushback from two people that we interviewed, which was Daniel Siebert, who was, you know, kind of the head, the head, the, the pioneering researcher for Salvia, you know, discovering Salvinor and A. Um, and then uh, uh, Dr. Peter Addy, we got Dr. Addy's interview. He, he and Dan, Daniel Siebert and Peter Addy went in front of uh, the California legislature and said, look, there's a lot of medicinal uses. And if you make this a schedule one and you ban it, you know, you're just going to, you're just going to be, you know, throwing away the baby with the bathwater on this. Like we, we just recommend that you make it 18 and over. There's no, you know, uh, harm that can, that, that we've able to see come out of this. Cause I'm sure people get drunk and jump, jump out of windows too, or fall down and, and, you know, break their teeth or things like that, you know, uh, which is, which is probably the only, you know, negative side effects that we've seen and people die, you know, alcohol poisoning and all sorts of stuff, but, but they've done all uh, enough studies to discover that salvia does not have any toxicity and it does not have any, um, uh, you know, addictive, uh, traits to it, which is, you know, it does have a, a real potential for medicine and it does. Um, and they, they brought up one of the most interesting facts about it 
which is and so California legislature just kind of wrapped that up. They they said, okay, we'll just do eighteen and over. We don't want to, you know, just you know ban all of the medical stuff with it. We'll just make it eighteen over. And so that was one of the first states that had where a little bit of pushback worked, and then um, research and and but you can still get it at head shops in California, uh, even though the the appeal of it is quite you know died died away since. Uh, about 2011, after Miley Cyrus was reportedly smoking it, we don't think she really was. It's probably marijuana, but that was kind of the big headline. And then after that headline, the interest in it kind of faded away and the interest of, of different psychedelic drugs that do produce serotonin uh, kind of maintained and, and, and did seem to have be easier to work with and have you know more chance of um, creating a medicine out of. So salvia is a bit of a tough one to create a medicine out of it, but if they can, uh, and basically the idea is to, to lower the psychedelic dysphoria and, um, and, and still use the benefits of it because it's, it's an opioid, it hits the opioid receptor that they're just learning about, which is the kappa opioid receptor. Whereas the, your most medicines that, that deal with the opioid system, um, would be, they do the, the, I think it's the alpha and, and a Delta and mu is, um, these, these Greek letters to kind of for these different receptors. And so, um, one interview we tried to get, uh, was the, what that we were unable to get, which, which was with Dr. Brian Roth out of North Carolina. Um, he's, he's more of just into this. He's not into the psychedelic, you know, kind of, kind of stuff necessarily, but he was fascinated at, at, and he was the one who discovered that it hits the Kappa opioid, which, which the science still doesn't really know a whole lot about. But the, the special thing is to, to, to get, into the opioid system without creating serotonin, right? Because the as we know that serotonin, um, it it can lead to some terrible addictions. You don't see that much in, in uh, psychedelics, but you know, just look at, at heroin, right? Or I believe fentanyl is, is an opioid, right? And so they can they can create you know um, quite a lot of, of of relief with pain, which is terrific. But, um, but to, 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 you know, you know, with, with like oxycodone and some of these pain relievers, they're extremely important for people that suffer in pain. Uh, but the, but the potential for abuse and addiction and death and all of that stuff is, is just, it's, it's a real, you know, cautionary medicine. So, so that's kind of where salvia lies in the science world. And then, um, it's, and for, for whatever reason, I think it's just because the other psychedelics are a little bit easier to work with, even with the microdosing that's been making lots of progress and things like that. So, so the, the, and almost all the other psychedelics do have serotonin like ayahuasca and magic mushrooms and LSD and all of that kind of stuff. So that's kind of where all of that is. And that's what, in, in, in our film, we were trying to just be as non-biased and just objectionable and just kind of look at the facts and then just make kind of an, an adult decision about how all of this works. Is it, is it, is it, you know, what the pros and cons of, of, uh, salvia basically. So, and, and psychedelic science, which is kind of the, the big, one of the big topics, the other, and then of course, um, um, the, the, the other big topic is, you know, should we put people in jail for this stuff? You know, should we, you know, is it, is it, is it that dangerous? Is it, do, is, I mean, of course there's the whole thing with the drug laws uh, being, you know, and, and, you know, causing more harm than good, particularly with like something like marijuana. 
which people are finally kind of coming to their senses about now, uh, of course, where it's, it's, it's becoming more legal and accessible and less jail time and all of these kinds of things. So, um, but what, what blew us away was when we discovered that, you know, the psychedelic, uh, there's the psychedelic science, but then there's also the religious use of uh, psychedelics. And this was, was something that was pretty mind-blowing that um, another thing with the legislatures is they don't even think about religious use when it comes to psychedelics. And we, we were digging into this research all of a sudden, and we discovered that uh, there are Native American tribes, the, the, uh, the Native American church under um, uh, James uh, Warren Flaming Eagle Mooney out of Utah, um, He's, he's the head of that chapter in Utah. Now, this I believe that the Native American uh, church is primarily out of uh, Oklahoma. And for centuries, uh, they've been practicing uh, peyote ceremonies for healing and, and, and for spiritual ceremonies. Um, and so they were fighting for decades in the courts, decades, to get uh, permission to do uh, uh, peyote ceremonies. Uh, sacraments to be to have it be recognized as a sacrament and to have it be recognized as their religious freedom which is a, a big you know a big thing in, a, in american law so um so what was fascinating we did get a wonderful interview with uh, uh, uh james uh mooney and then what he was telling us um was one of their big arguments was okay so they Technically, alcohol is a sacrament for the Christians and Catholics, right? You have the wine in uh, in in church, you know, and the, the the blood of uh, Jesus, and then the body of Christ is the is the the, the bread and the uh, the wafers. So, even during prohibition in America, uh, uh, you know, I believe it was the 1920s, right? So, the church they made an exception for the church. They said, "Oh well, we 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 the, the we could still let the let the church use wine as a sacrament. We can't, you know, it's part of the religion, you know. Well, but that's one of the, one of the few exceptions. And so, um, and so, using that, bringing that to the Supreme Court, I believe this was in the Supreme Court that that they were fighting this." Um, that was one of their key arguments. And then this, this and um, if you look at the history of what the winemakers did, they all had to kind of shut down their, their wine facilities, but they were allowed to, to, to produce a little bit of wine for the, uh, for the churches. And so they had a, kind of a special exemption there. So, um, so luckily the Supreme court, as far as I, I know, this is all correct, that, that they, um, they did recognize that, and then the, the 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 Native American Church was allowed to participate in in peyote sacraments. You didn't have to be a you know a Native American church member by blood, but you did have to be a member. And um, so, uh, so James Mooney was was using this uh, he he um, as as a healing practice. And in, in the movie, he, he tells the story about uh, how um, he was able to help uh, with somebody, uh, somebody's wife was, who was a wealthy man's wife was, was extremely ill, had, had um, 
um, I, I believe it was, uh, I, I forget exactly what the illness was, but, um, he brought, he did some, some, uh, spiritual healing with peyote and, uh, she came back and recovered. And this, uh, this, this wealthy husband felt really inclined that this was, you know, kind of a, a miracle from God and wanted to do something really nice for, uh, the native American church and help and, and help, you know, because since, since, uh, since James Mooney is doing such good work. Um, so he was given a large sum of money for the church, a big donation. And then with that money, uh, James Mooney was, was, uh, bought like five acre ranch in, uh, outside of Spanish fork, Utah, and was, was helping people, uh, with the, with, uh, peyote ceremonies, um, who were, who were, you know, suffering great, um, addictions, um, you know, great trauma, and so he was, you know, um, using parody ceremonies for that. And then the Utah uh, um, police and and authorities uh, discovered this. And um, even though they, you know, they were kind of in the wrong for, for doing this to James Mooney because they already, you know, were allowed to do this with the federal government. They still arrested him anyway. Um, you know, confiscated a lot of his property and then, um, uh, you know, dragged him through the courts and it was, uh, they were, he was going to be looking at a long time in jail for trying to help people with these peyote ceremonies. And then thank God the, 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 the judge sided with James Mooney and, and realized that this is a, uh, religious sacrament and that they're violating his rights for his religious freedom. And they, you know, backed off. And that was kind of another landmark case. So you have the, you have the, the initial uh, Supreme court decision that they could use peyote. And then you had the second one where, uh, they, they can't just arrest him for doing these, these ceremonies. And so, um, that it, it, we got his interview, gosh, I'm going to say 2011. And then, um, since then I've, I've seen this in California is, is, uh, People have been doing uh, peyote ceremonies under the guise whether they're, they're either a part of the Native American Church or or loosely part of the American Native American Church, um, or just using this under religious freedom expression kind of rules. Um, but we've seen even in the Valley in L.A. there was a, a an organ. I think it was a branch of the Native American Church that was starting to do ceremonies, and then they were going out to the Joshua Tree area doing ceremonies. There's also one in uh, Southern Arizona that was doing peyote ceremonies. And so um, it's just one of these key factors that, that lawmakers just completely, you know, don't look at when they're, where they're going to pass uh, laws and stuff like this on, uh, on, on, you know, natural psychedelics. And another thing that we discovered, which is absolutely fascinating, this would be another uh, mind blowing documentary. I know there's probably a lot of people that are uh, aware of this. But the um, almost all the Native American uh, tribes and and the ones in Central America and South America, not not all the time, but a good amount of the time, there these these tribes discover a local psychedelic and incorporate that into their religion and and do ceremonies with the psychedelic. Like for example, of course, there's ayahuasca, right? And in Africa, there's ibogaine, and then. Um, there in California, we were trying to get an interview with uh, the, uh, the. If you're familiar with the the 
the tribe that was right at, at, outside of Malibu and in Ventura County, I think this tribe was um, from Santa Barbara to Malibu. It's called the Chumash. So the Chumash people, they um, would use uh, what what is kind of the street name for it is called Hell's Bells. But this is a, a Datura, or da, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, it's like it's like a white flower that has a, a toxic psychedelic in it, and this psychedelic is deadly. It's very powerful, and so we were going to do a segment on this because we wanted to try to you know get a little bit more information on on psychedelics for the you know, the religious uses, and since we were we were right there you know in L.A. Um, we, we were going to do a little segment on the Chumash and, and Datura. And so we, we found an author, um, gosh, I'm forgetting this doctor's name because he, he, this, this segment was cut from the film. Um, anyway, he was, a he, he, I believe he was a, a either medical or an anthropologist doctor out of USC. And so we drove to the USC medical, uh, building in downtown LA and got a wonderful interview from him. And one of the most shocking things we've ever heard, because he wrote a book on the Chumash and Datura, and, and what we just kind of wanted to see what they were doing with this, because it's it's a uh, and do a little segment on it. So he told us one of the most fascinating things, which was um, according to him, the the Chumash would um, because this is a deadly psychedelic, Datura, Hell's Bells, um, they would. Right when a young warrior, they would, I believe they would only give this to the men. They might have given it to the women too, but I, from what I understand, they only gave it to the men. And so a young man, let's say he's like 13 or 14, where he's, he's, he's just starting to become a man, they would give uh, this young man, this young warrior, a, uh, a good dose of, of Datura. And even though it's deadly, if it killed him, and a lot of, I guess this would happen fairly frequently. If the young warrior was killed with the Datura, then that meant that he was not ready for the responsibilities to be a man, which was pretty mind-blowing. I mean, we, we were just taken aback during that interview. Um, and that, that was one of the strangest stories we've ever heard. And so, um, and unfortunately, uh, one of the times that Aaron, Aaron was in the hospital a bunch of times because of her lupus, one of the times we were in there, she, she was sitting in the, in the, what's it called? The, uh, uh, the, the waiting room. And she overheard, uh, medics and stuff saying, yeah, this guy's got hell. He's took hell's bells. We heard this guy just screaming and freaking out. And unfortunately, because it grows wild in the hills of California and Santa Monica mountains, this, um, People were would find it and they would take it and then they would they would overdose on on hell's bells and die, and so um, so any anyhow that that segment didn't really make it in, but uh, but basically those are the two main things that um, lawmakers really need to take into account is if they should just basically if they're going to make something illegal they, they need to make it schedule two. And really do a good review if this if there's potential for medicines out of out of any of these products or any of these substances, and then they have to really if it, if it is a psychedelic that's a naturally occurring psychedelic, there's a very high chance that this psychedelic does is does belong to some kind of a religious community. And so we were trying to get we went to the to the uh, the, the Chumash festival, 
and uh, to try to get an interview from a, a Chumash to see if they still do this uh, ceremony with Datura. And unfortunately, um, we got at the festival at the wrong time. And um, every, all the, all the, uh, the people that I, I was able to speak with were, um, you know, they would not give an interview and they were actually offended that I was asking questions about uh, psychedelic ceremony, ceremonial use. So that was kind of a dud. I do have some pictures of, of Aaron there. We did get a little bit of B-roll. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so that's kind of the, the big journey right now. Salvia is, um, it just doesn't seem to have that appeal. It just seems like, uh, the, there's not a lot of science going into it. So, uh, we probably are going to be, it, I'm hoping this will happen, this, that we will be the largest film on the subject, the most well-researched and the most in-depth film on the subject, um, you know, hopefully forever, but like, uh, but maybe, you know, who, who knows, of course, but what's fascinating about our film and what we think our film can do to help is it should give the foundation to different scientists and, and, and people researching because it, we really do kind of lay out the initial is, is, is the, the initial groundwork for, for the, 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 the legal history of it, the medical research, the medical potential, and um, and then the, the spiritual practices of it. So it's a good foundation for anybody who's who's looking to uh, study salvia or or potentially you know take it into the science labs and and look at creating medicine out of it. So uh, where where can people uh, find the film and watch it? Yeah. So uh, the the website is salviamovie.com, and we're also on social media. Um, but all of the links are at salviamovie.com and it's on Amazon now. And then, um, you know, eventually I'm going to get it on some other platforms and then, uh, we may be doing some screenings a little bit here and there. And then, but you could, you, you, you can watch the trailer on, uh, on the link. We have a Vimeo link. I'm going to be putting the, the film on sal on, uh, on Vimeo and other platforms soon too. So, um. Well, thank you a lot for taking the time to be on, on the podcast. My pleasure, Alex. I, I, I really appreciate you, uh, you know, giving us a, a bit of a voice and then uh, and appreciate anybody out there uh, checking out the film. And so, yeah. Yeah, check out salviamovie.com. And um, that's about it for this episode. Please subscribe to the YouTube. Just search Nurturebon Alchemist channel on youtube and you can also follow on social media of course born alchemist or national born alchemist just search that and ye shall find uh, you can also become a patron all the links in the program notes so let's close now with uh, a track called landscape 7 by pedro elias freedom is in the mind